Why do literature and folklore matter? How do stories help you find out who you are and where you come from? Where do you find your home when you live on the border between spaces, between countries, between languages, between genres, between literature and life, between politics and poetics, between memory and the present? Welcome to Sentience, a podcast from Trinity University that asks how people experience, understand, and express the world. Today I'm talking to Dr. Norma Elia Cantu, a poet, novelist, folklorist, memoirist, and theorist of Chicana literature. Dr. Cantu is the Murchison Distinguished Professor of the Humanities at Trinity University. She's written many books, including books of poetry and criticism, novels, memoirs. She's co-edited many volumes. She's won several distinguished awards and recently recognized by Gemini Inc. in San Antonio for a lifetime achievement in literary arts. On today's episode, we talk about how Dr. Cantu came to be interested in writing, from her childhood in Laredo through her journeys in Spain, from literary theory to collecting folk tales across the Americas. We talk about borderlands and ethnography and the role stories play in hospitality, identity, and exploring the spaces between. First of all, thanks again for being here. I'm extremely excited to have you on Sentience and especially to talk about your work. How did you get to thinking about and doing literature? I'm thinking especially about how your background in Laredo led to an interest in language. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here, and I acknowledge the spirits of this place, that is Trinity University. Our ancestors ask permission to do the work we're about to do during this interview. And, uh, yeah, how did I get interested? I don't know that it was a conscious decision that I said, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be interested. I was nine years old, and I was already writing little poems and things. My family had a tradition of declamación, which means declamation or poetry performance. So we memorize poems and recite them. And at, what, three, four, I was reciting these poems in church mostly or at home. And I think that's where it started, this interest. It grabbed me with language, and language has always been there. So I started actually, if you want to call it professional, more thinking about publication when I was already in college. In high school, I was a member of the newspaper, the journal, we called it. Very original, right? (laughs) And uh, we just wrote stories, and so I was thinking of journalism as an area I might go into, but I really wanted to be a teacher, so no. Mm. And English was the natural one, so I was an English major. And then I was also a political science major. But I was writing, this is the 60s, 70s, so I'm writing about what's going on, Vietnam. My brother was killed in Vietnam in 68, wrote poems about that. So there was a lot of, not necessarily for publication, but just to to write. I was writing the whole time. I kept a journal, a diary, since I was, what, 14, 15? So it's just there. Yeah. It's not like, I'm, oh, I'm going to be interested in pursuing this. It, it just was there. And it still is. It's still like breathing. I can't not mm. write. And I, I keep a journal. I don't do it religiously every day, but I do jot things down. 
And I find that it helps to generate ideas for poetry or for stories, too. When I'm looking for things that I want to write about or things that say, I think I remember that story. I'll go back to the journal and there it is. And so that helps. I'm struck by how even from the very beginning, you know, reciting or declaiming these poems in church, that right from the beginning, it was connected to community and spirit, which have never left your work. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Mm. (laughs) I mean, that's where it's built from community. Mm. And the other thing I'm really struck by in all of your work is that the border becomes blurry between many things, um, between languages, between cultures, between politics and the personal. So writing about your brother being killed in Vietnam is both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I forgot to say, but all of that early declamación was in Spanish. Right. (laughs) And when I get to first grade and I don't know any English, it's kind of a little shocking. Hmm. But it took me very little to kind of adapt because I already knew how to read and write. My grandmother at home had been teaching me to read and write in Spanish. So... It was a transition. I joked that I was a product of a bilingual education, and it was transitional on some level, but it really was keeping both because at home we spoke only Spanish. Everything we had, the newspaper, whatever literature was around was in Spanish. So, yeah, that's always been bilingual. And, yeah, the border is a special place, not just linguistically, but Mm. culturally in every other way. Will you talk a little bit more about how Laredo and the two Laredos and growing up there influenced how you think? Yeah, I think anyone whose life formation happens, especially really early on, in a border community or a community where there's various contending cultural pushes (laughs) are going to be developing differently. For example, my way of counting, when I remember in school when we had to learn the metric system, well, I already knew it Hmm. because at home, that's what we used. Hmm. I mean, we used both. They would say libras, también kilos. Or we would go shopping across the river, everything was in kilos. So it wasn't new as it would be for people who didn't have that experience of the border. And yeah, I think it shapes how you think and how your brain is wired to alternate between different codes linguistically, but also different ethos even of how you are in the world. Another example might be the way that I just see the world. (laughs) It's not monolithic. It's not only one kind of people in the world. It's many. And for me, the most salient experience there on the border was that because Laredo had an Air Force base, we had kids in school who were black and who were from other parts of the country. Not too many because the majority was us, right? And we were all Mexican. But there was enough diversity that I felt it. And I mm. knew it was there. You know, especially when I got to college and some of the college kids, we had dances and the guys from the Air Force Base were around. So it was a real mix. Meeting people from different cultures right. has been a huge part of your journeys, right? And I was struck by how you have sometimes learned more even about your ancestors and your home community by going away. Right. And I think that started really early where I wanted to travel. Yeah, I believe in past life. So maybe in a past life, mm-hmm. I didn't travel and I wanted to do it in this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have been able to travel widely and I love that. I love traveling. Part of it, I think, is that that you become curious about the world to see what's beyond the known, what you know. 
and Laredo, it was pretty insulated, even though we had the Air Force Base there. Uh, the rest of the community had been there for centuries, including my family. So it wasn't necessarily cosmopolitan in that sense. But at the same time, I felt that I wanted to go out and see the world. That tension and that urge to journey seems really reflected in your character, Nena, from Cabanuelas, where she goes to Madrid and journeys through Spain. And part of what she discovers there is more about festivals that she grew up with. Will you talk a little bit about her journeys and how they might relate to yours? Sure, but we have to remember that it's the same character who was in Canicula, and in Canicula, it's pretty much based in Laredo and Mm -hmm. Nuevo Laredo and that area, the border area. And now here's Nena in Spain kind of doing the same thing, kind of experiencing the world, if you will, or maybe recovering a world that was hers. Mm -hmm. One of the things about Nena, and she says it in one of the things, is she had never wanted to go to Spain because of the colonizing empire and all the stories about that that her father would tell her. So when she does go to Spain, she realizes they're just people like anywhere else. And it changes her view of the other, if you will. And who is the other? How do we negotiate the other? I've been doing some work about hospitality and then attention of the guest and the host. And the idea of Nena going to Spain, she's the stranger. And on the other hand, she feels like the stranger, but she also feels like the host. And so there's that tension again of when and where you are one or the other. And hospitality studies a lot of it is based on Jacques Derrida, the deconstructionist. And he's very much into questioning those power relations of who is the host and who is the guest, the stranger. And for me, for the border, obviously it has to do with migration of people coming into our country and how hospitable or inhospitable we are and why. So. Yeah, Dena is kind of experiencing that in reverse, going to a country that is not hers. However, they speak Spanish, so she feels there's this nepantla, this in-between space, mm-hmm. Ansaldúa would call it a nepantla, where you have both one world and the other kind of come together into a third space. And theoretically, that's what I'm really interested in is that third space. What are the borders of the third space? Are there any? Because you bleed from one into the other and create a new, it's not necessarily an interstices because that to me means something else, but it is this nepantla, this place of in-betweenness. For both Derrida and Ansaldúa, literature has a really special role to play in third spaces and in the act of hospitality. Will you say a little more about the importance of literature in this journey? Oh, absolutely. I love literature. (laughs) When I was deciding whether to become a lawyer (laughs) or go into a PhD program, I really went deep and realized that for me, literature is a, a factor of life. Writing it, reading it, experiencing it in all forms, including film, theater. But the main, for me, my main is poetry. And poetry has probably the most ancient. I don't know all the history of all literature, but the chanting and the early, I'm talking prehistory now, uh, was, I think, poetic and had rhythm. And 
that to me, of all the literary genres, poetry is the one that speaks the loudest and speaks the deepest Mm -hmm. in terms of who we are and why we are. The influence of literature is a different thing. We only are influenced by what we know. And for me, being an English major in Laredo, uh, it was not Spanish. It was all in English because, of course, the racist system in Texas, we didn't have access to anything but American and British literature, mostly British at that point. Remember, I'm 76. So it was a kind of lopsided view of literature and what was there. But I always read outside of what the school was teaching, and I went to the library as a child. (laughs) My mother would go shopping downtown in Laredo. A lot of families did that. And I would go hide in the library while she did all her shopping, and then they'd come back and pick me up. But I just would hide in the library and find books that probably I wasn't supposed to be reading. (laughs) I didn't understand half of them because they were in the adult section. But I read voraciously, even all the way, even now I read four books a month, sometimes more. I try to read one book in Spanish a month just to keep the language fresh in my head, in my mind, since most of my world is spent in English. So literature, especially novels in terms of fiction, I would say novels that have to do with life, with decisions, with how a choice changes a life and how a character like Nena decides to go to Spain and it changes her life. And yet, and I'm not going to give anything away, but she's trying to decide whether to stay there or come back. That's the kind of pivotal point in the novel when she chooses to come back to her home. And it's it's a love story, but it isn't necessarily just a romantic love story. It's a love story of the land. She loves the land. She loves the family, all of that. And the pool is greater than the other love. At least that's what I was trying to achieve. Initially, that novel was two novels, and one was set in 2000, and one was in 1980. And the 2000 novel is the one where Nena is in Spain doing this stuff, and the 1980 one, she's in Laredo. And so it goes back and forth, but then I changed it all and made it 1980 in Spain and 2000 in Laredo. (laughs) And pretty much left out all the Laredo part of it. (laughs) You know, in 1980, I lived in Spain, or in 1981, and so I remember very little of it. But, you know, a post-Franco Spain was a very particular landscape. Will you talk a little bit more about the political landscape of Spain in the early 80s? Oh, yeah, La Movida, it was called. (laughs) And there was a mayor who came in. I mean, the fact that Franco was no longer there Although, remember that skit, he's still alive. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) I think for me, being in Spain in 1980 on a Fulbright was magical on various levels. Politically, the country was undergoing a tremendous shift and adjusting to the newfound freedoms, which meant a lot of exciting theater and music and Oh, the newspapers were full of all kinds of stuff. And people who had tertulias, which they had always had, but now they were about contemporary things. And the latter part of the dictatorship, the Spanish were going to France, basically, for their cultural experiences. Now they didn't have to. They were bringing the French and the Dutch and all these. uh, I saw incredible German theater in Madrid. I mean, just all kinds of vibrant, creative 
1980s, but it felt like the 60s mm. <laughs> with that freedom that we experienced in the U.S. in the 60s and the excitement, the creative excitement that goes with that, with freedom. Politically, unfortunately, I think it's changed now and things are not what they were. I didn't want to get too much into it in the novel because I felt that would kind of tarnish the other message. Mm. And so I wanted to root the whole argument back in Texas, which was also going through a transition and a shift, but in a different way especially for like we are now, when the political system is so oppressive that the creative forces or the creatives in that culture have to leave. And that's what happened to Spain, people left. So they were coming back in 1980 and reestablishing the literary traditions and the literary expressions, the cultural expressions, the folklore, my God. It was so amazing to be there and to see the revival of some of the folk traditions that had been outlawed. Will you talk about how folk traditions and especially folklore are distinctive and how you became interested in gathering folklore? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the same question with the literature. I didn't become interested. It was me. It was who I am. Uh, as a child, my grandmother taught me folk remedies, told folk tales. I memorized folk poems. So it wasn't anything new. What was new, and again, it happened in graduate school, is when I realized I could study this stuff. When I went to graduate school, my first academic paper, actually, was at the Texas Folklore Society, where I presented a paper with my professor, Alan Briggs, on Laredo folklore. So that was 1973. And I was blown away that, that I could do this. However, none of the schools I ever went to had folklore programs. They were few and far between back then. They still are. So I couldn't focus on that. I didn't really want anthropology because I saw anthropology as really colonizing and really going in there <laughs> like buzzards and trying to get mm. things from people and take it back. Right or wrong, that's how I saw it anyway. I don't have that same feeling now, but at that point, that's how I saw it. So I didn't want to go near anthropology. So I found a home in English, which allowed me to do folk literature. And my dissertation is a folk play, La Pastorela, which is why I ended up in Spain in 1980. I was researching the origins of this old medieval play and how it came to be in Laredo <laughs> and uh, in the community. It was not in the church. So that was kind of the folk thread that goes through all of it is the folklore that I grew up with and the folklore that I discovered as I went through studying about these things. When I became president of American Folklore Society, one of the main things that I wanted to do was recover the lost or the forgotten folklorists who had been there all along. And many of them African-American, indigenous, definitely Chicana and Latina, I say female because most of the ones that I wanted to recover were the female. The males were already there in the canon. But the ones I was interested in recovering were the, the women who had been doing the work since the 1920s, 30s, collecting folklore and writing about it. So that, to me, is really exciting to find the hidden treasures mm. that folklore houses because people don't pay attention. They don't think it's important. 
And yet the wisdom and the social responsibility that comes with that, to me, that's really essential. In any folkloristics, we need to look at why we do it and how we do it and what's the outcome, what is the result of, say, investigating the song, The Streets of Laredo. One of my friends, Jose Limon, is writing a book on that. And so why? Why would we want to even look at it? Well, it's full of political and sociocultural knowledge. How are folkloric politics or other literary elements different than other forms of literature? What matters about folklore in particular? I don't know. I think that would depend on the folklorist (laughs) who's collecting and analyzing the different, in different places. And it matters differently. For example, one of my mentees, my ahada, she calls me madrina, Soli Barotero, does work on Cuba and researches the Afro-Cuban connections and spirituality. That's what matters for her. And it's a very political project looking at trans and other LGBTQ issues within that. So that's kind of what she's interested in, what matters for her. For me, just like in literature, I can't stick to one thing. I have a, <laughs> I have a finger in a lot of pots. And uh, for me, folklore, I've done work on the Matachines. I have a book I'm still working on, been working on it for over 20 years. It'll be out someday when it's the time. Uh, and the Matachines are a folk Catholic tradition of dance that happens in my community on May 3rd for honoring the Holy Cross. But in most communities across the Americas, all the way from Alaska to Chile, Matachines will be honoring other saints. In Mexico, it's the Virgen de Guadalupe. And so it is in Kansas City and Chicago and wherever there's Matachines, they're going to be honoring the Virgen de Guadalupe. And the other passion is the coming of age narratives, but also rituals. So quinceañeras, obvious, weddings, uh, graduations. But I haven't done a lot of work in that. I've done a couple of papers that I've published, and I am working on a book that should be out this spring for the Texas Folklore Society on the fiestas in Laredo. And it's the Matachines, the Quinceañeras, and George Washington's birthday. (laughs) And so that's the third kind of axis of my interest in folklore, and that's public rituals, public displays of power and contestation. I'm struck by how some of the kind of folkloric or folk life festivals you attend to are really about liminal spaces transitioning between one age and another or one period and another. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that, again, it goes back to my interest in Nepantla yeah. <laughs> and having that in-betweenness and the transitions that occur there. Also, I think that whenever you have that, there's transformation. I'm sure you've moved from one place to another. And there's always a sense of loss when you leave a place, but there's also excitement about the new place. And so that in between, you don't want to leave, but you want to leave. <laughs> and and those feelings of wanting both <laughs> at the same time, yeah. I think that's what drives some of the research that I do in communities with rituals and with public displays and definitely the coming of age 
rituals. And that reminds me too of Nena's homesickness when she is in Madrid thinking about Laredo. And a lot of what she misses, Christmas, <laughs> New Year's, Reyes. She's over there for Reyes, I think is when she first gets there. Reyes Magos, January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany, which isn't celebrated hugely in Texas. <laughs> uh, we do more Christmas, but I did as a child because we would spend Christmases in Monterrey. And there they celebrate the Reyes Magos, not the birth. And I'm talking about celebrating, not like with a mass and all that, but with the kids getting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all the candy and gifts and all that that comes with it. The other thing that interests me, and I, I haven't done any publication on that, is food. Mm. Food waste associated with all these rituals. And so Nena is over there missing the food and missing the excitement of the festivals and missing George Washington's birthday and everything else. Some of that seems so consistent with or wrapped up in the oral nature of the stories that are transmitted, that this is, you know, part of everyday life. You eat something, you drink something, you tell a story, you have a dance, you have a festival together. Will you talk a little bit about the way stories passed down orally are different from written literature, but also what happens when someone writes them down? Those are two really critical questions, especially the latter. Absolutely, yeah. The beginning, the transmission of the literature through the oral tradition, for me, is crucial. I'm diverging here, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things that worries me is about how children are no longer being told stories, like at bedtime. You read the story. That's that's okay. But the storytelling tradition that I grew up with was not written. It was my grandmother telling the story. And that has a different oral, you know, you hear it differently, but it also has a different emotive, affective impact. When you're so focused on the words that you're hearing, it just changes things. <laughs> it's oral. And part of that shift to non-orality, if you will, I think is diminishing the ability to be moved by story. As a consequence, we have fake news. We have all these other things coming through that are in the oral tradition, if you will. And there are folklorists who study the dissemination of fake news and some of these things that go viral of the folk story that comes out of that. But Going back to your question, the other part of that, the latter one, really gets, I think, at the matter of how literature captures that story. It's all about the story. I was just talking to somebody who was visiting campus because they're applying for a job. We were at the interview lunch, and we were talking about stories and how critical stories are in education. We was here for an education position. And the story matters no matter what. So... When I teach, I tell stories, uh, not just about me, but stories that I've heard or stories that are in the news or stories that are apocryphal about, you know, just folk tales and things. Mm. And I think the Christian tradition teaches us that. I mean, the parables are all stories. Yeah. And it's about teaching behavior and teaching history and teaching through the story. For me, the story is essential. I know for sure the way we tell stories now is going to change the way we live. And part of it is because of technology. We are now relying more and more on technology. So you see kids 
sitting in front of a screen at night to fall asleep. And I'm going, oh, okay. Mm. But, you know, it's the iPad telling the story or whatever, instead of a human being there with a human voice. So that's one thing. The other is what's in the content of these things and the games that kids are playing. We just did the unit on children's folklore in my folklore class. And I asked the students, because I helped my professors produce a book about children's folklore back in 1973. And I just recently found it and I'm going, oh, I'm going to update this because I don't think kids do this anymore. It has all the tongue twisters and all the fun tales, games, all kinds of stuff. And so I asked my students, I had them look at the book and read it. And I said, what do you think? And they said, oh, no, we don't, no one does this anymore. But they do other things. And they were also concerned. They're only 20, right? And they're concerned that their 10-year-old sibling isn't doing what they did when they were kids. And I'm going, hmm, so maybe this is generational. (laughs) Everybody feels like their childhood was the best. (laughs) Well, there's something about the kind of stories you hear as a kid and that you hear again and again, reiterated in different ways, that there's something so powerful about that, right? Right. And it's also a way, I think, for continuity to maintain and sustain that cultural anchor and kind of a foothold in that culture so that you know who you are. And so I can see why it would feel distressing to feel like that's being lost, that you break that continuity. And even the very term folklore, as you've talked about, has passed out of favor with a lot of academics. First of all, why is that? And why do you insist on rescuing it? I'm not so sure that it's all academics. Definitely those of us in the field don't. Mm -hmm. But for a while, it was kind of like a bad word and partly because it had a bad rep. And I go back to the origin, the etymology. The lore is the knowledge, and the folk are the people. So it's the people's knowledge. Unfortunately, the German folklorists and some of the others that were the first kind of coining a term, I think uh, it was actually a Scottish professor, I can't remember his name, who coined the term folklore. And it made perfect sense because that's what they were doing. They were gathering the knowledge of the people, right, to pass it on. I use folklore instead of folk life against the wishes of many people, (laughs) especially people of color. And part of that is that if you want to be taken seriously as a scholar, the field of folklore is not seen as, I don't know, legitimate, as scholarly, as theoretically sound as some others, anthropology, for example. Mm. So I say, why not? This is the knowledge of the people. It should be taken seriously. It is serious. It brings to us knowledge that we don't get anywhere else. Mm. We bandy around the the term embodied knowledge, but very often we don't think about what that means. It means something you know in your body, that you have experienced, that you have felt, that you have tactily somehow engaged with the material culture, you engage with with the senses, right? So that knowledge is different for everyone. And that means that to engage with it as folklore means you're part of the story too, when you engage in a story. And I'm thinking here about one word you use to describe some of your own work, which is autobioethnography. And so ethnographers famously or infamously can imagine themselves as stepping away from the object of study and maybe othering it or anthropologizing it, but not you. 
the autobioethnography connotes to me that your autobiography is mixed with this ethnography so that you're recognized as a memoirist and as somebody studying other cultures or your own culture, that you're part of the story too. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And part of it comes from reading Levi Strauss. Mm. Um, when I read Tristel Peake, his book about Brazil, I mean, he's a famous anthropologist who did all kinds of works in structuralism and all of that. I thought, this guy is doing his work through his life. I mean, it's an autobiographical memoir. But on the other hand, he's writing these other books, and when he's writing that, he's not there. So why? And this is years ago. I started thinking, way before I wrote Canicula. When I wrote Canicula, I thought, oh, I'm combining the autobiographical with the fiction, because a lot of the tales or the vignettes are fictionalized, and the anthropology that I've been doing my whole life, the researching, the traditions, and all of the ethnographic data that had been, I had been researching and accumulating, all of a sudden there's a novel that has elements of that. And that term just kind of popped. It's, mm. it's autobioethnography because it's autobiographical. And I do call it creative autobiography because mm. it's creative fiction as well. So, yes, I definitely think that you can't divorce one from the other. Mm. If you're an ethnographer, you're already in some ways putting yourself into the narrative that you're writing. And the best example of that is anthropologist Ruth Behar. When she first published her work, inserting herself into the narrative, she was highly criticized. Of course, now people are doing it. But they're doing it also in fiction. So you have autofiction all of a sudden popping up. Well, we had a term for it back in the day called Romana Clef, which is the same thing. It's a novel based on your life, but now it's autofiction. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is that you cannot take the person writing the ethnography or the narrative, the novel, out of the equation. It's mm -hmm. part of the equation as is the reader. And that is the other part that I don't have exactly clear because you can't control that. Who's gonna read your work? Mm. You don't know. And you'll be surprised, often I am, to find that somebody reads. A student just pointed out a couple of days ago on some TikTok, some person has my novel on there and I'm going, oh really? I had no idea. So. You can control certain parts of it, like it or not, you are part of it, but you cannot control the reception, the way people are gonna see it. Because the reader will read herself into it as well. Exactly, and bring in that part of the ethnography. That's right, that's right. And I guess this is another way that your work brings us back to borders that you cross, which are between memoir and fiction and ethnography, between what does it mean to live a life and to be part of a culture. And, uh, the host and the guest, as we are here. <laughs> that's right, absolutely. I really loved what you said about how not only does hospitality make it possible for someone to enter a space and learn from tales, but also your act of gathering stories or the act of scholarship or writing can be a form of hospitality. Yes, and literature invites the reader. That's right. I mean, even the words we use, right? And you go into someone else's world. Yeah. And build the community. And the community of, first of all, the readers, but also a community, I hope, of actors, mm. people who are going to act and create.
create something or do something with that knowledge. That's the other part of the folklore that we didn't really get into. Because when I work with people like Veronica Castillo, the ceramicist here in San Antonio, I nominated her for a National Endowment for the Arts Award, and she got it, and it was wonderful. And, and she's taken that and gone, I mean, just leapt forward with all kinds of exciting ideas. She has a gallery. She teaches kids in the summer. And so to see that happen, it just transformed everything for her. And the National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Awards recognize people in their communities and across the country who do things like that, who work with community through folklore. And it's so wonderful to see how stories can become the seeds for this flourishing. It gets back to the continuity you were talking about. Yes. And it's intergenerational too. Yeah. So coming back to your first love of poetry and maybe the first origins of literature and folklore too, one of my very favorite of your poems is Talking Dreaming and the way you write about rivers and specifically the the Rio Grande. Will you talk a little bit about that poem and what it Mm. means to you? I love that poem. Hi, my name is Norma Elia Cantu and I'm reading Talking Dreaming from my book, Meditación Fronteriza, Poems of Love, Life and Labor. It means a lot. <laughs> the river is in my veins, they say, in the poem, and I, I think it is. It's biologically who shaped me. I drank the water from that river, and it's who I am. But it also is a violent river. A river, a strong spring current. The blood tickles me with its eddies as it runs through my veins. What we had to leave behind to get here rag dolls, my LP collection from the 60s, my CDs from the 90s, my childhood barrio, my letters, your love letters, acute depression, deepest night, the solid base of my parents' home, illusions of peace, of joy, Che Guevara, Marxism, my ideas of justice, my childhood church with its May flowers, and all that I carried on my back since the war. The war that will not end, that war. And we, have and we can romanticize and talk about the Rio Grande coming all the way from Colorado and going through all the different changes as it comes along to the end, to the Gulf Coast. But also it's violent and it can destroy just as much as it can nourish. And to me, the river, and not just the Rio Grande, but... The San Antonio River now has that effect on me. It's water that brings life, but also takes life. And the conundrum for me is how do we, first of all, accept that and work with it and be in it and be okay with it. It is what it is. Nature is not always, you know, birds singing and everything hunky-dory. It's also the violence. I remember the first time I saw a cat trap a bird and kill it. I was fascinated. I couldn't believe it. I was in graduate school. I was in Kingsville, Texas, looking out my window. And there's this cat just sitting there, and I'm I'm looking at the cat. It's not moving. It's just sitting there. And in Spanish, we say ligando. I don't know the term in, in English for what the cat was doing. But the bird just kind of fell off the tree at his feet, and he just grabbed it. So he mesmerized it. That's the word. Just with the power of staring at it. And the bird just fell, and he captured it. And I, I thought, oh, I just couldn't believe it. And I think that kind of metaphor 
is there. So nature is like the cat. It does things like that. But it's also a nice furry kitten that you know rubs against your leg and you pet and it purrs. Mm. <laughs> so it's this, it's life. Mm. And folklore and literature are life. It's about life and how we deal with life as human beings and as other sentient beings. So you have a lot of travels coming up, including going back to Spain with some students and also Madrid. Will you talk a little bit about what you're doing? Sure, the Camino de Santiago. I have been teaching that class. I taught it for three years as a one-hour LAC course. Mm-hmm. Year Trinity, it's uh, literature and culture. And so the course, it was as if we were walking the Camino. Every week we would read a couple of etapas and at the end of the semester, you've traveled the Camino, right? So now we're actually physically going to be there. Not the whole Camino, because that would take too long, but the last 100 kilometers. So we can be certified pilgrims. And I have done it now five times. I did the whole thing once. And then I've done other short ones, other Caminos, because there are many. Going to Santiago de Compostela, the old pilgrimage site where St. James is buried. And Sarah Pinnock, one of my colleagues here in Religious Studies and I, are going to be doing it with 12 students. It's exciting. Very exciting. And I think of that as so much of what you have done with your writing, too, is bring people along on a pilgrimage. Hmm. I like that metaphor. <laughs> yeah. And in my teaching, too, I hope, yeah. um, brings people along. And also discover, because pilgrimages are about discovering and finding. It's not so much the goal of getting there, it's what happens on the way there. Mm. Like life. (laughs) How you live the life, not how you end it necessarily. It's a wonderful way to end this and how the discovery is at once about the world out there and about yourself and that the journey is... uh, The journey is inward as well as outward. Thank you, Norma, for this wonderful conversation and I urge all the listeners to read more. Oh, wonderful. It was my pleasure. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have talked to Dr. Kantu about stories, borderlands, about spaces between, about journeys and home, and about autobioethnography, as she puts it, where one's personal story meets the story of a people. I'm grateful also to the listeners. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And please stay tuned for the next episode of Sentience.